0: Is a clean and healthy environment a civil right? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. On today's program, social justice meets climate justice.
1: When we talk about communities that are on the front line, we talk about the most impacted, we talk about the economic consequences, and we talk about the health effects. We talk about the whole idea of communities that that will somehow culturally disappear.
0: Dr. Robert Bullard is Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy at Texas Southern University. He's the author of 18 books that address issues such as environmental racism, climate justice, disasters, regional equity, and more. The Sierra Club named an Environmental Justice Award after him in 2014, and he was named one of the world's 100 most influential people in climate policy by A-Political. This year, Climate One is awarding Dr. Bullard with a Steven Schneider Award for outstanding climate communication. The late Dr. Schneider was a brash and brilliant scientist and communicator and an early advisor to me when I founded Climate One in 2007. After he died in 2010, I created the award, now $15,000, to honor scientists who are strong communicators. Robert Buller grew up in rural Alabama, not far from Montgomery, a center of the civil rights movement.
1: Well, you know, I grew up in an era where everything was segregated in the South. You know, I went to an all-black elementary school, middle school, high school. I never had a white teacher until I went to Iowa State University, worked on a Ph.D., my undergraduate university was was all black alabama a m university so I grew up in an era where civil rights and fighting for justice was uh, was the same in voting and and young people and students and you know, I was part of that you know that student movement and so my parents and grandparents you know they were strong supporters of voting now i didn't see myself you know growing up as an environmentalist, but in terms of of um, growing up where having gardens and having uh, this, this whole idea of of not uh, wasting things and, and being creative with the little that you have. I didn't grow up, quote, impoverished or anything. You know, we had uh, a little money because my great-grandparents actually was able to uh, get uh, 550 acres of timberland in ten years after slavery, we don't know how they got it, but we know they got it, uh, and that's how uh, my parents were able to um, to sell the timber uh, every six or seven years to send all my uh, siblings to college. And so I was very aware of the environment in terms of outdoors and 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 trees and and nature, uh, but it was not, I guess, rooted in this. Whole idea of modern environmentalism, the idea of uh, being outdoors and having rivers that that were clean and pristine, and because um, my parents would, my my dad mostly fished. uh, He was not an angler. It wasn't uh, catch and release. It was catch and bring home, clean and eat. Uh, And so, so, so that that idea was was all instilled. And so it was not, as I said, the whole idea of being, of how, how environmentalism was defined. We're not members of, of organizations that, um, that had environment in their names, but we were concerned about the environment. We worked on environmental issues and, uh, in a way that, that, uh, that went unnoticed. It was not until, you know, Earth, first Earth Day, for example, in 1970, April, I was in, I was in Marine Corps, and um, and there was a war going on I, It called Vietnam. And so I was not, you know, at the first Earth Day. But it did not mean that I was not, you know, concerned about environmental issues. Um, there were other issues that were like civil rights and voting, et cetera, that, were, that had high priority. More. But breathing also had a... a good uh, priority also
0: more immediate and personal Um, i learned in in your book uh, that dr king was called to memphis in 1968 and i we all know that but i I bet a lot of people don't know why dr king was in memphis in 1968 tell us
1: yeah yeah Uh, dr king was called to memphis uh in support of striking uh sanitation workers and Uh, If you don't think uh, garbage is an environmental issue, you let the garbage workers go on strike. And as a matter of fact, in '68 they had to call out the National Guard uh, to pick up the garbage, and Dr. King was assassinated in April before he could finish his his job. And, uh, of course, I was, in in April 1968, I I was uh, a senior in college Uh, and, of course, devastated. That's a long time ago, but you think about it, it's not that long ago. Mm. We think about um, uh, this whole idea of of civil rights and environmental rights. And for the last, you know, 25, 30, 40 years, to get civil rights and environmental rights to converge, uh, it took a lot of work and convincing our environmental brothers and sisters, organizations, but also it took a lot of convincing of folks on civil rights to work on these issues with the same fervor that they brought to, to uh, uh, civil rights and human rights. And it finally occurred with the convergence uh, into what we call environmental justice.
0: And uh, in the late 1970s, 1979, a seminal moment in that uh, conversion, Congress banned PCBs in 1979, and there was an effort to find a dump, basically, for these toxic carcinogenic chemicals, and a spot was identified in Warren County, Mm -hmm. North Carolina, a new landfill Uh, And that in some ways is there's sort of the creation story of environmental justice. So tell us what happened there. And you worked with uh, Benjamin Chavis, who played a key role in that.
1: Well, Dr. Chavis led the struggle in Warren County uh, in 1978 when they when this company from uh, from New York uh, came down to Raleigh and wanted to uh, recycle uh, this oil and they find out that the oil that they were going to recycle had been contaminated with PCBs. And since they couldn't recycle it because of the law, they dumped it along the highways. And, and then they cleaned it up. Then they needed a place to put this contaminated uh, dirt, dirt. And when they opened the envelope, the winner was Warren County, one of the poorest and one of the blackest counties in the, in the state. And uh, Dr. Chavis and the uh, United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice and the NAACP and, and the communities um, in Warren County said no. And uh, Dr. Chavis coined the term environmental racism, that this is environmental racism. And over 500 people were arrested. You know, 1970, uh, 1983, um, it, it was a pivotal year in that. You know, uh, Dr. Chavis and the commission got the uh, the general county officers do a study on what was happening in the South. They found out 75 percent of the hazardous waste facilities in the South are located in black communities, even though blacks only made up 20 percent of the population. And, and so the idea of of this national movement uh, gaining steam out of Warren County uh, and that there were isolated uh, struggles going on all across the country, even the one in Houston and other places across the country. But Warren County put the issue on the map and people put their bodies uh, in the streets, H- high school kids laying prone, trying to stop these dump trucks and people arrested. And in the continuous uh, sustained struggle, people saying no, no, no. And this is when uh, uh, the, the environmental justice movement came together uh, and people started to identify with that struggle, and uh, so that was a shot heard around the world. One county,
0: and it was the United Church of Christ that played a. And so there was, which I, th- you know, what's the racial complexion of the United Church of Christ?
1: Well, the, the United Church of Christ is a white denomination, but the Commission for Racial Justice was a black civil rights organization based in the church, faith, uh, faith-based uh, group in the church, and the the whole concept of of merging. Civil rights and environmental rights uh, and the faith community. That was something that uh, emerged out of uh, the civil rights movement, of struggling, a uh, struggle against um, uh, injustice, whether it was housing, voting, education. It now had basically been pushed into the right to live in a clean, healthy environment where, where you don't get uh, dumped on just because of the color of your skin or, or the amount of money you make. That was novel.
0: And it took the, the church and moral leadership to help kind of fuse that, put that in a moral frame.
1: Yes, it did. And, and the idea that young people uh, 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 got out of school and cut classes. This is 1983, 82, and, and basically the, said The height no. of Reaganism. <laughs> yes. And so when you talk about this whole idea of, of social movements and the role that young people and students have, have played, every social movement that has been successful in this country has ha- had a strong youth and student component. You know, back in Warren County, with that birth of the environmental justice movement, the civil rights movement, peace and justice, women's movement, and right now, the climate movement. You look at young people and what they're doing, what they're saying, they're owning these issues, and they're saying, no, we don't have to wait until we can vote to be uh, mindful of the fact that we are destroying this earth and we're on the wrong direction, and we have to do something about uh, climate change crisis. It reminds me of of us in the 60s who we were fearless. We weren't afraid of going to jail. We weren't afraid of of basically people saying, well, you're going to get a C. Uh, (coughs) Well, you know, having a C and can't breathe is what's the what's the purpose. And so the idea that there's there's a calling that you have to say, no, we have to change. And those with the most energy uh, who can you think of other than young people? They have lots of energy, and so we have to have this intergenerational movement struggle uh, for justice and and i 'm biased. you know I am for justice. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Environmentalism has often been a bipartisan issue in this country. You know, certainly President Nixon was, would be a radical environmentalist by t- by today's standards. The first President Bush, uh, I learned from you, was surprised. Actually, created the first office of environmental equity mm-hmm. in the EPA. But tell us about that creation and, and why.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the, um, the the creation of that office was um, the impetus for, uh, that followed. A conference that was organized uh, by uh, Paul Mohai and Bunyan Bryant at the University of Michigan, where where they basically pulled together a few of us, few academics, and you could almost uh, fit them on one hand that were working on. This is 1991, uh, working on environmental uh, uh, justice, and they had a conference at the University of Michigan, race in the instance of environmental hazards, and a uh, few governmental people. EPA was there and some, uh, some community people. And after the conference was such a great conference. He said, we need to write um, the EPA and, and the President's Council on, on Environmental Quality and Health and Human Services and, and ask for an audience with them. And we got an audience with EPA, with William Riley, and we had a sit-down. Uh, William Riley was, the, um, was an environmentalist, a conservationist. He came and directed EPA, a Republican. So he, after we met with them he made a commitment. We'd had a conference calls every quarter, every three, is that a quarter, three months? Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And and so he made a commitment to us that he would make some changes inside of the EPA and he created the Office of Environmental Equity. Now, we wanted the Office of Environmental Justice. We said, we're not asking for equity. Equity means, uh, in some people's mind, meant that we were talking about uh, spreading the poison uh, equally, Now, we said, no, that's not equity. That's madness. We said, we want justice, no community to be um, to be poisoned. So he created this office and, they, and then he produced the first national report on environmental justice. The report was entitled Environmental Equity, Reducing Risk for All Community. They still were, they were afraid of justice uh, for some reason. Uh, but but equity was a was a softer term. We say you can call that title anything you want, but we know what we want from our um, from our justice communities uh, around the country. And then they had a definition. They define environmental uh, justice, and then they define uh, just treatment. You know, the government has to define anything before they can do anything. <laughs>
0: You're receiving the Steven Schneider Award for Climate Communication. Steven Schneider was a fearless communicator, and he was in the natural sciences, but he had a unique, I think, understanding of the—, of the he was in the in natural sciences, had a unique understanding. He talked to economists and social scientists uh, cross disciplinary communication, which was fairly rare in the climate world back back then. Um, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on the importance of kind of communicating the science and sociology and kind of uh, the different disciplines speaking about climate, which is seen kind of as a atmospheric far away issue. At least it has been.
1: You know, I think I think the idea of climate change and this whole issue of the science and how we communicate uh, that science and to uh, expand Uh, what it means when we talk about a climate crisis, uh, a global warming, a climate change, that climate change has to be defined more than parts per million and more than greenhouse gases. When we talk about communities that are on the front line, we talk about the most impacted, we talk about the economic consequences and we talk about the health effects. We talk about the whole idea of communities that that will somehow culturally disappear. And when we uh, define and communicate that outward, then we have more people that will come to the table and say, oh, I understand what you're talking about. We don't ask people to believe. It's not a belief. You know, it's like asking people, do you believe in gravity? Jump off a 12-story building. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when we talk about communicating, you know, the the, the issues, I think we have to be uh, multilingual when it comes to different disciplines. You know, I've written 18 books in, on transportation, housing, you know, on food security, on disasters, and and they got catchy titles, but it's just it's 18, book, its 18 books, but it's just one book. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> but it's the thing that holds those books together is fairness, justice, and equity. And when you look at climate and look at the fairness, justice, and equity with the science part, you can see how the justice part, um, that's the policy. And that's how we are to start addressing this, because, you know, we could have, you know, deal with climate change in one little corner of the, of the, of the Earth and not deal with all these other uh, uh, equitable or inequity and still not address the total picture locally as well as globally. And so what I've tried to do is 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 when we talk about climate change and we talk about these other issues, how we bring in economics, we bring in transportation, energy. You know, I wrote a book called "Just Transportation." This map, yeah, just transportation. Get it? But the idea is, and I wrote another book called that dealt with transportation, called "Highway Robbery." So, if you look at, you know, both of those deal with energy, mobility. um, They deal with issues of infrastructure, and so when you start defining. And bringing in the climate piece, you're talking about the energy, you're talking about transportation, you're talking about infrastructure, you talk talking about jobs, you talk talking about access to opportunity, all those things. And, so, and we used to get, well, you're talking about social issues. We, we deal with environment. I won't call any names. We don't deal with environment. You have to do what you have to do. And you have to bring organizations, bring the idea of justice, fairness, and equity, even some of the smartest people along, because sometimes people are only thinking in their own way of thinking, and so what? In communicating out, you try to bring those people in a, in, in, a, in a I guess a way that they can see how things work. And the word for today is intersectionality. Intersectionality: how things connect, and how you can make sure that people understand those connections. It's like connecting the dots. It's like kids' work, you know. We as a kid, used to connect the dots. That's what we're doing.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation with Dr. Robert Bullard. When we come back, how post-Harvey recovery efforts brought the fight for equality to Houston's poorest
1: neighborhoods. It took a biblical flood to get environmental groups to come together with groups of environmental justice groups, of faith-based groups, groups working on transportation and food security, et cetera, to come together. And we say it should not take a disaster for us to come together. That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the intersection between civil rights and climate equality. My guest is Dr. Robert Bullard, professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University and widely recognized as a founder of the growing field of environmental justice. Joining us now is Adriana Quintero, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Energy Foundation. She began her environmental career as a litigator for the Natural Resources Defense Council, but she soon realized there was a disconnect between the organization and the community they were representing.
2: We were working on pesticides litigation, and so it was very obvious to me that there should be some Latino farm workers represented in these cases. And while they were referenced and we were talking about them, we weren't talking to them. There was not that connection, at least in what, and we were doing the litigation. So for for me, that was a a clear disconnect and something that needed to be addressed. Fortunately, I was working with a really uh, amazing lawyer who was very committed to environmental justice to this day. And he just basically said, you're right, let's go do it. Let's go and start figuring this out. And that began my journey um, to, to try and, and to really learn. I had to educate myself. I did not come to this work knowing all the history and the wonderful work that people like Dr. Bullard had done and the environmental justice movement had done. So for me, it was really a learning journey to see and try and make sense of the disconnect, which to this day, I... Um, have trouble understanding how we got there, how we got here, yeah. how we got to the point where the environmental movement really lost touch with the humanity and, and the communities that were most impacted. And um, it just continues to, to motivate me every day. Dr.
0: Buller, I'm a big believer that business models drive a lot of organizational behavior and a lot of environmental groups uh, rely on upper-income coastal elites to write checks uh, to fund their organization. Um, In 1991, you were part of a group of people who wrote to the Big Ten environmental groups and said, you're not, uh, I think you even wrote an article saying, can Houston be green if it's not brown or black? Has it got that right? So um, (laughs) tell us about, you know, our environmental groups, you said the Sierra Club wouldn't allow black people, are they afraid of race because of their funders?
1: Well, you know, I don't want to go into anybody's head. I'm a sociologist, not a psychologist. But I do know that um, if an organization, a green organization, does not uh, look at the changing demographics of this country and and start to, uh, I wouldn't say color coordinate, but at least um, (laughs) color coordinate and diversify, (laughs) then they're going to find themselves uh, uh, losing memberships or, or whatever. What we have found over the years is that when we organized the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit in 1991, uh, and, and under the auspices of the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice and Dr. Chavis, um, we, we basically said that people of color uh, must be in the room, must, and communities on the front line must have a voice at the table. And what, when we had those four-day summits, we said that we will develop out of this summit, organizing principles. And when groups, when people went back home, many of them organized grassroots organizations and started networks, et cetera. And what we said is that we will press um, uh, and pressure uh, the green groups to, um, to uh, become more diverse in terms of their boards and their staffs and, and agendas. But that would not be the driver uh, at the forefront of our movement. Our movement is to make sure that those communities of color that have that are faced with many challenges when it comes to the environment, uh, need to have their organizations, their institutions funded at the level that's commensurate with the problem. Because if we could, if we somehow keep funding the same groups and we keep, you know, add one or two persons to the board, what I call the whom syndrome, W-H-O-M, uh, we have one minority. If we start using that, for that uh, that principle, the money will still flow, and you'll have a whom uh, on a board, and that still won't solve the problem of our organizations of color that are underfunded. We can do both. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We must diversify the organizations, but we also must diversify the funding. Can I get a hand? Yeah.. <clears throat> So, Adriana Quintero,
0: you work for an organization that funds about $100 million, which is relatively small in the big world of philanthropy, but there have been studies done that show that the, the lion's share of philanthropy goes to the big national organization, which are predominantly white. Um, have philanthropists done a good job to Dr. Colleen responding to Dr. Bullard's that call?
2: No, and I would go ahead and also answer and add to the the answer that dr bullard so well so put so well i think there has been a discomfort with talking about race there has been a discomfort with facing looking in the mirror and realizing that big changes need to be made and when things appear appear and i really emphasize appear to be working it's even harder but working for who right or whom <laughs> we're in, right <laughs> but no really work how are they truly working and i think it's taken far too long uh, at least as long as i've been in the movement to come to that realization that now we're seeing philanthropists realize we really missed the boat on this it's we're we're so far beyond time to really get close and 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 just Take the spotlight off of the of the white groups and look at the communities that are facing these problems every single day, because what where is the knowledge more rich than there? And I think this over reliance on science and data really dulled us, I think, for a long time. And, and, and drew us away from the stories, which is really what motivates people and motivates change. And I think that's why, uh, to your point earlier, why we're seeing so much movement is because that energy is driven by the story. Yeah. And, and so I'm heartened to start to see the change now, but we didn't have to wait this long.
0: Dr. Abrim X. Kendi is the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. His latest book is called How to Be an Anti-Racist. At the Commonwealth Club recently, Kendi was asked how we can talk about racism and anti-racism in a way that helps people understand where they fall.
3: It's not who a person is. It is what a person is doing in that moment. And people change. And so people, when, when we're talking about health care, they can speak from an anti-racist perspective. But then when we talk about criminal justice, they, they think that black people are dangerous. But then when we talk about education, they believe that inequities stem from resource inequities. They, but then when we start talking about climate change, they're like, what climate change, right? It's not affecting the global south more than the global north, right? And so ultimately, people are distinct when it comes to different issues. But then also, even on the same issues, even in the same speech, even in the same paragraph of the same speech, people can say both racist and anti-racist things.
0: That was a Brahm, ex kendi professor and author of the recent book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. So, uh, Dr. Bullard, your response there, that people can kind of move in and out of that place based on the
1: issues they're addressing. Yes, exactly. And and I I think uh, when we talk about race, it's very difficult for some people to talk about race. They they shut down. And so just like the concept of justice, justice, uh, when we're talking about justice at the EPA, you know, back in 91, th- they saw that as threatening. And so in some cases, when you say, well, no, we want justice, justice means going back, looking at some of the things that uh, distributive kinds of, of, of challenges and, and policies that, that have legacy issues that go back. So when we talk about race and racism, and, and when, the, um, when the environmental justice groups wrote that letter to the Big Ten, um, back in uh, 91, not the football Big Ten, the, the, <laughs> the green groups, they were called Big Tens for your youngsters out there back, way back when. A lot of the groups got offended. How dare? They said, well, look at your boards, all white. They said, yeah. They said, look at your staff, all whites, yeah. Look at your agendas, your, your yeah. So we're not calling you racists. we are just saying what you're doing is not in, working in, in our behalf. And they said, well, hmm. Then some of them said, well, because all the green groups are not, uh, it's not... Broad brush, they're different, just like the environmental justice groups, different. They said, well, you know, we're going to make some changes. We're going to go forward. And some of them did. Some of them say, well, how dare you call us racist? Uh, we don't want any part of you. And so you see some of that. And so you can look at that, that um, trajectory of who has been out front moving things and trying to address things and trying to reach out and trying to. Um, you know, bring in partners and coalitions and alliances and etc. And, and 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 who has not? And I'm not going to call any names, uh, but I could, uh, and, but I don't have to. If you're engaged with some some of these organizations, some of these groups, we had to fight our oldest civil rights organization. Not calling any names, but you know the initials. We had to fight them because they said we don't work on environmental issues, and we say, are Are you concerned about black people breathing? <laughs> And then but it took 20 years for the for our mainstream civil rights organization to get on board with this issues of environmental justice, because they were saying, oh, you're trying to shut down jobs. We say, no, we want people to have good jobs, safe um, in terms of the workplace and fence line community. We want the fence line community to be safe as well as the workers. When we start explaining to them what we were talking about, then they say, oh, we get it. So so unpacking that kind of injustice, and when it's racism, call it for what it is. Don't run from it. And as I said, all injustice is not racism. It took us almost 10 years for the people in Appalachia, or Appalachia, whichever you want to call it, uh, to understand that, that we're not, we were not calling all the in environment injustice racism, and they were a lot of the whites in Appalachia were, were, were somewhat hesitant about working with us because they were thinking that we were talking about racism all the time. We said, "No, mountaintop removal, contaminating your water, contaminating your air, making people sick. We will fight just as hard for you to get and keep clean air, and clean water, and safety in your neighborhoods, etc., as we would in Mississippi." And or in Louisiana or Texas, it took 10 years for the people to understand that because many of them couldn't get past the fact that black folks and brown folks and people of color were leading this movement. See, that's just this, this whole idea that some way people can't fathom the fact that black people and people of color and indigenous people are out front ahead of a lot of the very smart organizations who have PhDs at their heads and engineers and environmental scientists at their head when it took them 20 years to understand what we we're talking about. And we were, talk- and we were writing and speaking in English. <laughs>
0: You're just joining us, Dr. Robert Bullard is Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy at Texas Southern University, and Adriana Quintero is Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion with the Energy Foundation. I'm Greg Dalton. Adriana Quintero, the Green New Deal is this aspirational thing that's out there that you know, a lot of people probably couldn't quite define, but, I, but it stirred quite a debate. And I think that the inclusion of some of the justice and economic issues that Dr. Bullard's talking about scares some liberals, it makes them uncomfortable because they think they're going to lose some of their privilege, some of their wealth. Is
2: that fair? I think that's fair. I think that's why it stirred so much debate. But to quote again what Dr. Bullard said earlier, the Green New Deal was, came on the scene with a big bang because of the intersectionality that it presented. And it really brought to light the reality that We can no longer think of the environment as one bucket that just sits alone in this silo. No, it has to do with transportation, it has to do with housing, it has to do with jobs, it has to do with health. All of these things are tied directly to our environment, to where we live, to our opportunities. And the... the there is absolutely no threat to thinking of it that way. That's actually how we break this logjam that we've had. And, and frankly, take the, the energy out of the, the others who debate whether or not environmentalism is something that's important. When we start to show the connection to every single part of our lives, it's undeniable. So Anyone who is nervous about this particular piece of legislation just needs to look at how it's energized the conversation. It has sparked debate like no other piece of policy has, at least, in, again, in my lifetime in this movement. And, and I think that is where we need to be. We need to start talking about solutions that actually benefit everybody, and benefit all the aspects of our lives. Because if we continue to to silo environment, we're going to lose a lot of people. And it's just not realistic. Mm -hmm. And the people who are going to be most impacted are communities of color. Which, you know, we were just talking about the the insanity behind excluding communities. When you look at the polling behind communities of color, uh, by every single time we've looked at it, the support that exists for climate policies, the awareness of the fact that climate change is happening is so much higher among communities of color. And when you're looking at Latinos, when you're talking about the Spanish speaking only communities, then it's even higher. And, and so why wouldn't we take advantage of the fact that even if you wanted to just be brass tacks database, that's the top. That's a ton of people. And it's the same thing when you look at the people who are energized by the Green New Deal. There's millions of people who would have never stepped into this space had that not come on the scene. So that energy, to me, is what we need much more of. And we need to continue to generate that and, and have that, um, these new and innovative ideas. They might seem scary to some, but it's just because change is you know, makes us a little nervous. And you know what? That's a good thing. That means we're growing.
0: Dr. Bullard, a lot of the quote, mainstream environmental efforts have been funded by people who basically want to keep the economic and class structure in place, and they're worried that their house in the woods might burn down or their their house on the ocean might get flooded, and they want to keep things the same and kind of swap out fossils for clean, but they don't want to tackle some of these deeper racial and structural issues. Is that fair?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the the long and short of it is is that um, I think the time has passed for tinkering and around the edges um, the fact that we are facing uh, a threat um, in terms of climate change and global warming that that um, that it will call for bold action and bold um, decisions that that will need to be made across the board and economic political um, in terms of our transportation systems and in terms of our energy systems, in terms of, of our housing, in terms of land use planning, in terms of all those things coming together. So it's not just you know we talk about solutions. You just can't have you know a few policymakers sitting in a room who've all been trained in one little area, uh, who went to the same school, who may not understand anything what's going on the ground in a community uh, where they've, ne- they've flown over it. Thirty thousand feet, and every, at thirty thousand feet, everything looks small. Mm-hmm. Looks great. You can't see the gr- granular kind of thing. So, 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 so we need to really think through this whole idea of keeping things as they are. Right now, in Houston, Texas, fourth largest city in the country, only major city that doesn't have zoning. We're fighting like hell to make sure that the recovery does not post Harvey recovery does not reproduce the pre-Harvey inequality. We don't want to rebuild on inequality and and make it like it was, because like it was is unequal. It took a biblical flood to get environmental groups, mostly white groups in Houston, to come together with groups of environmental justice groups, of faith-based groups, groups working on transportation and, and food security, et cetera, to come together. And we say it should not take a disaster for us to come together. But 2018 election was a blue wave in Houston, and the old guard was swept out. New guards came in, and the idea of building equity into way funding, building equity into the way that decisions are being made, having the right people who have been exposed to inequality for decades in charge, they can see that it makes a whole lot of sense to build out housing because housing affordability is a big issue. Transportation, a big issue. Access to jobs, uh, the issue around flooding, around issues around land use, planning, et cetera. All these things have to be dealt with and not just one issue of flood mitigation. So if we go with the old guard, they just want to do flood mitigation and they're going to money follows money, money follows power, money follows white. That's how it was done before. That's the formula that's, that that's um that's shown and 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 it, it comes out in study after study with the cost benefit analysis you get money following where the most damage the biggest homes cost benefit analysis will say, well, you put the money over where the eight hundred thousand dollar homes are. why should you invest in eighty thousand dollar houses uh, when it costs forty thousand to do whatever they'll put the money over where the big homes are and and the big homes the neighborhoods of the big homes will get. Uh, will see their property values increase, whereas the communities of color will, will lose. They will lose out study after study. And so what we say, let's not um, keep that policy in place that will marginalize community further down the economic ladder and at the same time move the more affluent at another, at another level, which they increase their, their home values and their quality of life. Their, their, their disaster preparedness and their resilience, et cetera, whereas you, you make poor communities even more marginalized. Now, that's what we're fighting in Houston. We saw that, you know, play out in New Orleans after Katrina. We're seeing it play out in disaster after disaster. We said that should not be. When you don't protect the least in your society, you place everybody at risk. That's right. And so our thing is justice will say let's do fairness, equity, And and justice to make sure that we do not somehow say just because you live in a low-income neighborhood that you don't deserve to have a park, a grocery store, uh, and, and flood mitigation and flood protection. You don't deserve to have access to transportation. We say that's the equity part. That's the justice part. Let's deal with the whole picture and not just somehow just because your neighborhood flooded for the first time, now you just want to deal with one issue. The justice framing and the equity lens will say we need to address those legacy issues that somehow got swept under the rug or got somehow wiped off of the slate of policy. And that's what we're fighting for right now. And for someone who has tenure, I'm not shy. I'm not timid. <laughs> and at my age, I, I, I don't care what people say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're listening to a conversation about the fight for environmental equity. this is climate one. Coming up are we solving our social justice problems or just passing them on?
2: Because often when you fight a, a refinery or a dump out of your community it's moved to another community or exported to a different country where it's there's less regulations and it's less expensive to dispose of.
0: That's up next when climate one continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about environmental and social justice with Dr. Robert Bullard of Texas Southern University and Adriana Quintero of the Energy Foundation. Dr. Bullard is this year's recipient of the Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Communication, presented by Climate One. Let's go to questions from our live audience.
2: Hi, my name is Summer Solstice Thomas. I'm an environmental studies major at Williams College. How do we, when looking at like chemical and municipal waste disposal and even like chemical production, how do we pursue justice? Because often when you fight a, a refinery or a dump out of your community, it's moved to another community or exported to a different country where it's there's less regulations and it's less expensive to dispose of. So how do we find like true justice and not just equity like you were talking about just spreading the pollutants for everyone?
1: Well, the, 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 it's, it's not uh, easy and it's not complex. You know, the idea, if a community or a city produces the waste, it should figure out uh, how to deal with it and not export it. Um, in Houston, since that lawsuit was filed in 1979, Bean versus Southwestern Waste Management Corporation, not a single, land, not a single sanitary landfill uh, has been located in Houston since that lawsuit. And what that lawsuit did, it forced uh, um, a city that doesn't have zoning, it forced white people to say, whoa, we've, we've run out of black communities to put landfills because we're going to have a bunch of lawsuits. We must figure out a way to deal with our waste because we know uh, landfills are not compatible with white communities. And so they went to a very aggressive uh, waste minimization composting uh, program and um, And so the the idea of reducing the the amount of waste and extending the life of landfills and coming up with alternatives, et cetera, and recycling. And this is a city that that prided itself as unrestrained capitalism, uh, meaning that laissez-faire, you could do anything you want, uh, now uh, has forced itself to come uh, with with, uh, ordinances and regulations uh, that was forced upon them because of lawsuits. I don't think we need to be exporting waste and cross boundary uh, waste trade. Uh, and again, uh, when we work on landfills and, and manage waste management issues, uh, we, we don't say, oh, put it, send it over there. We work with communities that's the, over their communities and, and make you know, make them aware of what the issues are. And so we've been able to slow down a lot of the, the Senate across the border and, and exporting the problem somewhere else. Here in the US as well as uh, uh, abroad. And the fact that, you know, with the the spat with China, in terms of the trade spat with China, you know, a lot of, uh, quote, recyclables and waste now is piling up here because China is saying no. That means it's forcing us to do something.
0: Next question, welcome.
1: Hi, my name is Carter Brooks. A lot of, uh, you, you mentioned your whom thing, a lot of well-meaning groups, communities, et cetera, of,
0: of white people wanting to be more diverse are often trying to just bring people to them rather than learning to go out to those communities and find out what they need. So I'd like either the guests to
1: speak up about what more or what, how we could promote a different way of thinking so that that's the first thing we start thinking of, about how we're going to go to those communities to find out what they need rather than pretend we need them in our... Any, any way you want to speak and, to that
0: And in anyway, Quintero, a lot of times it's those predominantly white organizations going to communities of color saying, we know what your problem is, and here's how we're... <laughs> you should solve it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean, I th- that's exactly what we're trying to change. And I, what I see happening... Now, which I think is why the tide is really starting to to turn is we're starting with race. We're having that conversation about race. Uh, If we don't start there, it becomes really easy to make a lot of assumptions and just kind of pat ourselves on the back. But when you start with race, you have to face your bias. You have to face those assumptions and you have to realize that, especially if you're a white organization, predominantly white, that you don't have the answers that you can't even begin to have the answers so it really changes your stance from one that is paternalistic and all-knowing to a learning stance and that's really hard for people and it is absolutely essential if you don't have that as your first step i don't know how you really get to that openness and that that we have to develop a growth mindset around this and and we have not had that Um, so it's it's essential that we face our bias and talk about it and name racism and, and classism and privilege and all of these difficult conversations if we're really going to have a meaningful conversation and make change.
0: Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Uh, sure. Hi, my name is Kay. It's pretty much the same question, just more specific. Um, Climate One's audience is really white. And same with the Commonwealth Club. How does this organization bring more diversity here? Great question. Um, you know, it, it's certainly an establishment organization. We, you know, having programs like this, there's all sorts of issues of getting people. I think the the sometimes the Commonwealth Club name feels like, ooh, that's downtown. Will I be comfortable there? Is that like all white men with leather wingtip chairs? <laughs> um, people have a certain perception, right? Uh, of that name. And it used to be that 75 years ago. But now, you know, um, it's something I think we struggle with just as much as, as other organizations. Having programs like this um and certainly spreading the word um if you'd like to talk afterwards and you have some suggestions i'd, I'd love to hear them because um, we kind of reflect the um, we do a lot to 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 have gender balance we're pretty proud of the gender balance we have on our program it's about 55 45 uh it's less uh, balanced racially and ethnically um so thanks for that question
1: welcome Good evening, everyone. My name is Alexis Curitz, and I'm a clean energy and equity advocate here in San Francisco. And the question that I have for you is, in the face of utility power shutoffs and the impending earthquake that everybody keeps talking about, again, I'm from Indiana, so all of this is new to me, um, (laughs) how do you suggest communities of color really frame the discussion around resiliency when understanding, like, like you were saying, uh, we are not really at the head of these organizations. A lot of us come in as assistants or program managers and so on and so forth. A lot of this is new to us. So how can we really help frame the discussion, not only frame it, but really lead these movements within these institutions? Well, you know, I, I, I'll give my, my biased uh, opinion. I think the equity lens has to be applied across the board where we talk about uh, the resilience concept, but also in terms of who's um, at the table, who's leading these issues. The equity starts at home. And uh, that that has to be something that's uh, that's going to drive this whole process, making sure that you have a diverse uh, pool of folks who are making decisions around how we're going to drive this this resilience uh, train. And it can't be just the same people uh, all the time. And moving from one uh, uh, issue to the next issue, where we talk about, oh, well, sustainability, and then we talk about resilience, or oh, then we're talking about, you know, the climate over here, and here we're talking about, you know, this issue over here. It has to come together. And that cross-fertilization, that intersectionality, for me, is, is will be key. And even though the resilience might be new to you on On one area, there are other areas where where you have lots of expertise and you can bring that expertise into that room that's talking about resilience because you can't have a resilient uh, city if that city somehow keeps building on the inequality and somehow economic inequality, racial inequality, the spatial inequality. I mean, those things have to be brought into the the mix and, uh, and, and sociologists are very good at that.
0: This is Climate One. We've been talking about climate change and environmental justice with Dr. Robert Bullard, Distinguished Professor of Urban Planning and Environmental Policy at Texas Southern University, and Adriana Contero, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Energy Foundation. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.